Welcome to Recovery Review. In 14 years of blogging, we've never posted any audio, but we've been using recordings to capture some of the interviews for our new series, Addiction Professionals in the Pandemic. These stories are so important, I want to make sure they reach as many people as possible, and I know some people prefer to read while others prefer to listen. This way, you can do whatever works best for you. Besides, there are some things that come across in the audio that just can't be captured in text. These were not professionally recorded. The quality isn't terrific for all of them, but I hope you enjoy them anyway. Sam Price is the president and CEO of 1016 Recovery Network. 1016 provides addiction treatment and recovery support to a 10-county region in mid-Michigan. I've always been impressed with how 1016 manages to deliver long-term and meaningful recovery support to people spread out over a large geographic area and in very rural communities. I was interested in how the pandemic may have affected 1016 and their patients. So I sat down with Sam and asked him to share his experience with us. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so who are you? <laughs> who am I? My name is Sam Price. I'm the president and CEO for the 1016 Recovery Network. Okay, tell me, tell me a little bit about 1016 and your role there. All right, the 1016 is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Um, I have been here since 2003, so about 17 of that has been um, on my watch. Started out as a halfway house by the um, local churches way back in the day, um, and that migrated into residential treatment, and then we got into um, outpatient, and then we got into prevention, and then we got into expansion, and at this point we're in we started in Midland, Michigan. Uh, we are now in 10 different counties um, providing outreach in emergency departments. We have residential de uh, recovery housing, prevention, outpatient, drop-in centers, collegiate recovery on three campuses, prevention in four, five communities. So we try and have the, the full continuum, um, both vertically and horizontally uh, to work with folks. And how would you describe the communities you're working in? It's a mixture of mostly um, rural. Um, Midland is probably more of a suburban community. Uh, we started to work in Saginaw, which is more urban. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of a broad mixture, but I'd say mostly kind of tilting towards suburban and, and, and rural. Okay. Do you have any personal interest in addiction and recovery that you'd like to share with us? Okay, tell us about is tell us about your professional experience in the area of addiction recovery. Do you have any prior to ten sixteen or? No, no. Okay. Um, when uh, when I was selected to to come to ten sixteen, um, we were my wife and I lived in Charlotte, Michigan. Um, she was a teacher for the hearing impaired in Lansing, and I worked at a um, a. Uh, a juvenile justice facility called Star Commonwealth based in Albion, Michigan, and uh, where they did had about 200 residential beds for um, children that were in the juvenile justice system and really had sites really across Michigan and Ohio. Um, but Midland was our hometown. Uh, and I've always been in the helping fields um, in one fashion or another, but hadn't been in SUD specifically. Um, but we wanted to get home. My wife's uh, mother was sick at the time. Um, 
the opportunity came up to, to come to Midland uh, and they invited me to, to work there, but it was really my first um, foray into SUD. So what are you most proud of uh, in your professional life? Oh. And I saw that question before and it really made me think. Um, I think probably most recently, I mean, you know, the, the growth of the organization in the years that I have been here have been pretty substantial. Um, but I think what it has most made me proud is the fact that um, the staff have this willingness to join me to be bold and pioneer. And for example, like the thing that's driving us right now is really kind of two ends of the spectrum in, in terms of how we view what we're trying to bring to the community. In the one sense that, you know, we know that only 10% of the folks that struggle walk through our doors or your doors um, on their own. So we have intentionally said, how do we put ourselves in places to get in front of that missing 90%? or more of that missing 90% and engage them in conversations that may spark um, the beginning of recovery. And um, that has attracted to us a lot of staff uh, or, or people who want to join us in the pursuit of that real almost raw recovery evangelism, if you will, of really, so we have ended up in the last you know, five to six years you know, going from one emergency department to 10, where we can sit in front of people who are in the ED, maybe not even because of their SUD history, maybe they're there for a broken arm, but as the, you're the great best example of, of who we have a chance to talk with. There was a time that my wife and I were in the um, emergency room for our, our own uh, medical situation as a family. And in the curtain right next door, to where we were, because that's the only privacy you have in the ED. Um, there was a 72-year-old guy who was in there for some cardiac issues, and he was waiting for the cardiologist to come. And so the nurse came in to do the health and physical and, and do the health history with him. And as she's talking with him, she finds out that he um, has been a widower for the last three years. He lives... Um, outside of Wademan, which is a town that's, you know, kind of this big, you know, population of just, you know, maybe a thousand at best, and he's not even in town himself. His kids live out of the state, um, and it's just he and a cat and a six-pack every night. Now, he's in the ED for heart issues, but I'm thinking, oh, and that's what our advocates have an opportunity to do is the nurse can then turn to our staff and say, hey, I think you need to talk with this guy um, because there might be something about the six pack a night that may be contributing to both his physical heart issues and his spiritual heart issues um, and be able to start that conversation that we'd never get if we just waited for him to walk through our door, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to work with the person who shows up under the influence or who shows up in the ED med seeking and stuff like that. Right. But um, we have so many rich opportunities to talk with other people who we would never normally be able to talk with. 
-hmm. and um, engage them in that change process. And then on the flip side, we also know that, you know, I've got to walk, walk alongside somebody for five years before they can get that remission rate down to, you know, a truly sustainable level. So how do we change our way of doing business and our way of offering services um, to folks that would cultivate that? And so we've totally re-engineered our outpatient practice so that it's full drop-in anytime you need to stop in and talk with somebody, you don't have to have a scheduled appointment. And the energy that that brings to the staff, um, because we can have this community um, approach. And, and so like, as people are in the ED, they know that they can invite folks if they want it, if they want to choose 1016 as a place to start that journey, they can go to this rich community, which then can introduce them to the natural community that exists out you know, beyond our, our professional walls. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that direction and the, the energy and the enthusiasm that the staff has, has kind of brought to that um, would probably be what I would say is, is my proudest moment within 1016. So you may have just answered the next question, but <laughs> <laughs> so, well, first, how long have you been at 1016? 17 years. 17 years, okay. Mm -hmm. So what keeps you working in addiction and recovery? It's funny, you know, people ask me that every now and then. And um, I, I think for my, for my own personal um, position is that I know back when I was much, much younger, um, I had an opportunity to um, experience redemption on a personal level. Um, because I was becoming a person that I didn't think I was up here, but when I really stepped back and really kind of saw where my life was heading, um, that that's not who I wanted to be. And there was a, a, a spiritual awakening, if you will, that allowed me to experience this sense of redemption and, um, the richness that that has brought as a point, uh, since then is something that I want anyone who is lost and hurt and broken to have an opportunity to find. Mm -hmm. And until, and, and particularly, I, I think with those folks that struggle with, with SUD, um, need folks to help stand in the gap and say, hope is here and, and we'll be here as long as you need uh, until maybe you can experience the same thing that, that I've experienced. How has the pandemic affected your work at 1016? Uh, well, it certainly has put a crimp on, on, on community. Um, you know, we have to be uber cautious um, for, for the safety of the staff and the safety of all of the clients. There is a, a fair amount of, of um, of concern that kind of comes with that, which has a lot of really un unhealthy um, consequences, particularly for you know the folks that we work with, because it, it breeds isolation, and isolation um, strips away the community that had been holding me together and and, and giving me that encouragement that I've, I've been looking for. 
um, or that I, I crave in order to be able to keep moving forward every day. A lot of that's been stripped away. Yeah, I can kind of get it through a, a virtual meeting, but that's not the same as being face-to-face -face with, you know, other folks. Um, so the loss of that um, is hard. Um, so a lot of the coping mechanisms that I had um, have been stripped away from me uh, and have been replaced in the same kind of meaningful way. Um, and all new kinds of stressors are kind of coming along uh, for us. So we've seen uh, an uptick in um, relapses. We've seen a huge uptick in the hospitals and um, alcohol-related uh, events. We've seen a big uptick in um, methamphetamine and opiate relapses. Um, so as, as so many others in the press have said, um, it's just, it has a, a secondary impact when you know kind of roll into a pandemic with an epidemic um it's just not a good combination yeah. uh, at all and so then, i think the other the other thing is that at the same time that it's it's impacting all the folks that we serve it's impacting everyone that works here at the same time so it's not like there's this separation so while I'm trying to be present for the people who are coming to my care, I still have to think about my wife and my kids and are they safe and my extended family and my parents, are they safe? Um, so none of us can escape it. It's not just impacting you know, the folks that we serve, it, it impacts all of us. And so it's hard to just kind of turn that noise off to be present, to help those that are looking to us for help and care at this time. Mm -hmm. So what, if any, long-term effects do you anticipate from the pandemic for the, for the field? It's hard to know fully because we're still so early into it, unfortunately. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously afraid that it could be another 12 or 18 months that this is going to linger, you know, if we have another phase that kind of comes through. Um, what I don't know is, is um, what that's going to mean to treatment facilities. I've already heard, you know, that several dozen across the state have already closed. Another several dozen are um, teetering on the brink of closure. So at a point, and because of people trying to be safe in the way that they run their programs that's limited access to treatment beds for those people that need a higher intensity of care. So access is just going to continue to get crippled, which means um, getting in for timely service is going to be really, really um, problematic for folk. Um, and there's not easy answers to, to know how to fix that. Um, and, and even, you know, when you think of, of what happens out in the natural 12-step community and the recovery community, even that has been impacted about, well, can we have meetings? And you can't have meetings of more than 10 people. And, you know, are those in place, are our are, are communities even allowing, you know, 12-step meetings to be hosted because of some of the risks that I may not want to take as a, a, land, a property owner to 
have that come in the space. So there's so many ripple effects that I, I think we're still just at the tip of the iceberg that, that we, we just don't even know yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, that's part of the problem is there's so much uncertainty and ambiguity that is difficult for people to know how to navigate. There's no end in sight to that, which gets back into that resilience depletion. Right. Have you seen any benefits or new opportunities in the pandemic? You know, I, I think certainly the, the quickest one that everyone turns to is the advent of telehealth, um, both for treatment services as well as um, recovery support, peer support kind of, uh, of opportunities. Um, and, and again, it's a blessing and a curse thing. I think certainly it it feeds in or, or fills in some of that access gap that we never had. Um, it's actually, I think, because we are forced to do it, has made kind of both parties, both providers and um, participants more open to that and finds that, hey, this can, this can be a nice thing for me to be able to have my session, but I don't have to worry about the headaches of transportation because I don't have a driver's license or I don't have money for you know, uh, the bus or something along that line. Um, so there are huge wins to that. Or I can, you know, I can go in the rooms and I can find a meeting anywhere across the country. Those are wonderful things. Um, there's limits to those things too. And, and so it's always the concern about when the pendulum swings or when the policymakers say, oh, look at that, you know, that um, all of a sudden it becomes a substitution for real community um, because we've been able to develop this virtual community. Um, so, yeah, I, and I think as it continues on, I, I think it will force us to continue to figure out how we can be more creative. Um, how does it force us out of our um, boxes? Uh, for example, I mean, it, it forced the, you know, the regulations behind telehealth before were just, you know, Neanderthal. You know, no one did it because the regs were so tight. Well, this kind of forced that change. And I think now that that horse is out of the barn that, you know, some of the, the people that hold the dollars have, have realized that, okay, maybe we were a little bit too rigid, too cautious in some of the stipulations that we put into place. So hopefully that will allow for um, more creativity and more freedom, more flexibility to um, spark innovation. Um, but I think we're still trying to figure it out and figure out what the rules are um, of how you can advance things kind of safely um, within this. If we can't, you know, if we have to limit the number of people that are in a room, if we have to wear masks or not masks, if we have to be six feet apart, um, those are, there's just so many new factors that we have to kind of sort through that um, I don't think we know fully yet. But it forces us to, to get out of our, our little cookie cutter approaches that we've been so comfortable with that has kind of defined how we provide care. So I'm excited to see where it may lead us. Um, I think all of a sudden we could have opportunities where yes, we're here in Midland, but all of a sudden maybe because of, of telehealth, we're providing treatment and care and support to people in you know Ohio or Wisconsin or Seattle. Yeah. One of the things that came to mind as you were speaking um, was I've been interested in 
professionals supporting each other. Mm -hmm. And geography has been a barrier to yes. that. Right. Um, you know, it's hard to build a community among providers. And uh, it seems like the telehealth tools, you know, Zoom and mm -hmm. Microsoft Teams and all that stuff present opportunities for communities among professionals as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that could be a very, another good silver lining that we have gotten very comfortable for, for doing this kind of stuff and feeling good with it. So yeah, being able to, we were just talking about that at our last uh, mid-state meeting is, is, you know, if we just have a, an open Zoom meeting for any provider that just wants to talk about the stresses and the, and the strains and the struggles of, of doing virtual care and all this other stuff, why wouldn't we? Why couldn't we? Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I fully agree with that, that maybe it's breaking down some of those walls that have held us back. Yeah. So if you were able to devote yourself to a fantasy project to improve treatment and recovery support, what would it be? It's a, you know, the typical magic wand kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I honestly, I, I think, you know, we, we still haven't figured out as a system of care of how we go beyond maybe that, that first year of support and how do, as people grow and mature in their recovery, the, the, those recovery needs change and, and, and how do we walk alongside them in meaningful, productive, um, and constructive ways um, would be kind of things that I would want, you know, cause, cause like we often talk within our organization is, is how do we, help people move from recovery into wellness. Mm -hmm. And that as I'm getting some of these early recovery skills down and I figured out this part, but then there's the next layer of, of my, my relationships or this, my, you know, I, I'm getting my relationship with alcohol and drugs in that right health, healthy place. But now it's about how do I find a career that brings me a feeling of meaning and purpose or how do I get my relationships in the a sense where that brings me meaning and purpose. Um, and how do I keep building upon that in a way that I have constructed this robust life that we all kind of long for and dream for? You know, I, I've seen some of those organizations that have, you know, like micro enterprises where they employ their own and then those uh, employees become, you know, the managers of different places. And, you know, some of those type of organic businesses or organic opportunities um, would be so cool to see uh, develop. Another odd little fantasy that I've had every now and then is like, I wonder what it would be like to have an assisted living facility for people in long-term recovery. I mean, I don't know why it's been there, but it's always been one of those, huh, I wonder, you know, as, as we age, would that be something? I don't know why, but it's always intrigued me about, uh, you know, that kind of a community and how could that look differently as we age when typically medications are being poured onto us and, and we're losing a lot of maybe our normal um, community because, you know, my, my friends pass away, my spouse passes away, my kids move away. Um, 
and what do we do best as, as recovering people, but community. So, but you know, and, and are, are the, the needs of, of somebody who's had a, a long-term history or, or struggle with addiction so that maybe they have special medical complications that are kind of unique to that, that niche group of folks. So again, it's one of those things like never spent a lot of time looking into it, but I've always been kind of fascinated about it. We're all that, getting that, older. That would be really cool. Isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So that's all the questions I had for you. I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Okay.